You are listening to Read It, Roll It, Hole It. He's two putts from victory. Only needs one. Okay, welcome everyone. This is the uh, the first uh, podcast of the Leap Putting Hub um, called Read It, Roll It, Hole It. And I'm very fortunate today to have one of my mentors on the uh, on the pod. So uh, I'd like to welcome Mr. David Orr. Hey, Ali. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks. And yourself? Good, good. So uh, we're going to talk through what sort of inspires you uh, and maybe a few uh, few tips for the listeners on how to, to improve uh, putting, but also in life. Like, you you go down some rabbit holes that no one else that I know in the world has been down. So I'd like to know, you know, where that inspiration comes from for to sort of keep learning and, and keep wanting to uh, to improve. Well, I think it starts with a natural curiosity and interest, obviously. You know, when I played putting, uh, wasn't my strong point uh, when I played, you know, college golf and mini tour golf. I always wondered why people treated putting so simple, and but the vast majority of golfers struggle with putting, right? My curiosity is to figure out some answers, and then obviously the more we learn, the more questions we have. So I've been very fortunate to uh, to have enough time to not only teach the game, but also do, do research, as you know. done a lot of research on putters, and then obviously the putting stroke, and then how, how people move their bodies, specifically their wrists and forearms, elbows, and upper arms and shoulders. So just I would say it just starts with a natural curiosity. Um, there's something you just said, which was... Um sort of the more we learn the more questions we have and i always remember that first time i come to uh to portugal to uh to your flat stick academy you're for level one and yeah. um you know you know paying to come to the course and leaving thinking christ i've got so many more questions now than i had when i came which in a good way sort of opened my eyes to grow as a human being really as well as a, a putting coach what i want to know is where's your happy place what's your uh well my happy place is obviously skiing on the ski slopes that's my getaway from golf work you know the world restarted that that passion again this past year and and uh just gives me a break you know sometimes i think we work so hard not just physically but mentally right good to have little little things that you can do with your family that's away from what you're consumed with for sure what's uh what's it been like sort of revisiting that and, and learning some new skills have you found um that that process to be quite easy or quite hard and is there anything you've learned that you can take to your your coaching yeah well one of the things that that i grew up skiing at age four and skied till i was 21 years old and then took 30 years off what's interesting is my knowledge of biomechanics has expedited the process of learning and then also my understanding of how learning is a process it's something that you know we have to develop in our brain it's it's developing new new and improved movement patterns and realize realizing that old patterns or old habits are th- going to always be there and they're going to interfere with the new so i think i give myself a break knowing that there's going to be some interference but i just need to put the time in so yeah applying what i've learned as a coach to learning to improve my skiing definitely uh, helps expedite the process. I think people don't realize that, you know, just because you take a lesson and you've got this information, that information has to be converted to knowledge and then you have to be able to apply that knowledge in the proper context. So, yeah, it's it's been fun applying what I've learned and becoming a student again, you know. So that's what's pretty cool about it. Love it. That's cool. Have you got any plans to go back? Obviously, maybe not in the... Uh the current situation but you're 
plan to keep going and, and you know go go as often as you can now absolutely i cannot wait for december to get here and i look forward to skiing a couple times a week you know obviously i've reduced my work my workload now especially with covid19 i do about work four days a week now you know doing online lessons which has been very good too so it's it's interesting i can uh like monday i had a couple online lessons at home uh, i got a big imac computer and putting studio so i can give these lessons online via facetime or skype and then the next day you go out and you know like yesterday i went out and taught for four hours at pine needles and then it's been a, a time that we've been forced to be creative with our work but i think we're all going to see a change in our work schedules as a result of this yeah it's a crazy uh crazy time for sure isn't it in the world and um just uh wish everyone stays safe that's the main thing those lessons you give david are they they're in the man cave are they yeah so yeah i've got the man cave with a putting studio uh i've got an eight by 12 putting surface and a hole cut in the floor with a cup set in there then i've got my big imac computer and that what's interesting is the, the camera of the imac looks right down the putting putting green so i can literally stand yeah, up fair. and Demonstrate so people can watch my demonstrations, and then I can turn around and watch them on the iMac, <clears throat> and then I also videotape um, them on the screen, and then shoot them a t- text with their video. Okay, cool. During the lesson, yeah. So it's actually worked out good. Like the other day, I posted on Facebook. I had a lesson in Tennessee, Missouri, and New Jersey. You know, all from my the comforts of my home. And I think what's interesting is you know people at first think these online lessons can't work, but actually they can work very well, especially good for follow-up with with clients that you're already working with. I've done a few as well, and it's been, um, yeah, I think you learn learn more about yourself as a coach, which which is nice. So what's your your biggest learning been from, from doing more online lessons? Using more creative thinking, just being really creative in the ways that, that I do things, um, connecting, you know, new ideas to old ideas and, and also looking demonstrations, uh, training aids. You know, sometimes we do some homemade training aids. Uh, like one of my favorite uh, training aids is a uh, square dowel that's three foot long and about five eighths to three quarters inch in diameter, and teach people the grip using a square dowel. So I mean, you know, just getting creative with with what you have and the time that you have. Let's um, let's dive down the dive down the uh, the training aid route a little bit about um what your favorite training aids are i know uh, uh, you're good friends with phil kenyon and um he obviously creates some wonderful products talk us through what what training aids are for david or and, and how he uses them and what he recommends golfers to use yeah well to me a training aid is more of a teaching aid the only time i use a training aid is when i want to teach somebody a concept and you know obviously vizio makes great products phil kenyon vizio the putting mats are really good for education on, you know, fa- uh, club face and path. Ball gates for your start line or laser, <clears throat> using a laser for your start line. Um, I like to make my own training aids uh, a lot of times, you know, just whatever it may be, whether it's colored golf balls or just anything that I know that's going to capture the attention of the student. Um, you know, I just uh, started uh, a relationship with well, wellputt.com. Wellstroke Products, um, they've made me a custom uh, putting t- uh, mat. Yeah, so I mean, I think the biggest mistake golfers use with training aids is is they rely on them too much. It's not trying to get the perfect stroke from the training aid or the acquiring the skill 
from the training aid because sometimes you remove the training aid and then then obviously they can't perform the skill so we'll, we'll get into a little bit of uh, technique perhaps in, in a bit but i'd like to just ask what your uh, what your sort of greatest learning moment has been over the years you know you've coached on tour you've been studying putting for 12 years is that right as a, as a sort of main topic now Yes. Yeah. So actually, you know, lost track of time. So, but yeah, I've been teaching putting since 2000, you know, six, 2007 in that range. You know, there's lots of learning moments. Um, I can't uh, necessarily pinpoint down one, but obviously, you know, I learned a lot at the Solheim Cup working with Suzanne Patterson, not just physically, but mentally, mental preparation on how she went about mentally preparing to, uh, to make the big putt there that she made on the last hole, the last green. Yeah, so there's there's just so many. And, I mean, I even learned from my average golfer, you know, so there's so many special aha moments uh, that you get. Talk me, um, can, can you uh, expand a little bit on, uh, obviously, that special moment you had with Suzanne and, and that special week at the Solheim Cup? Yeah, I think the the background to it was obviously the press was really tough on the decision to be on the team, even though it was the right decision. I can remember her rehearsing mentally, um, saying that I hope it comes down to the last green, the last hole, you know, the last hole, last green, last point, last putt. And she goes, I want it to be me. And, 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 you know, getting herself in the right frame of mind, almost envisioning herself doing it. Um, and then what's ironic is that it literally came down to last, you know, last hole, last green, last point, and it being a putt, and with, with her, with her being in that situation. So I think one of the things it's mental preparation. The key word is preparation. Uh, preparation is is a little bit deeper than just practicing. You know, what I mean, I think a lot of us just go out to practice, we putts around on the putting green, but are we really mentally preparing with the intent to make putts and? You know, one of the interesting conversations that uh, Paul Doolin, PGA Tour mental coach, and I had a conversation last week, you know, is that we need to learn to uh, replace our expectations with intentions. And expectations pretty much set us up for failure, you know, uh, and they create uh, stress and anxiety uh, when, and especially when we don't meet those expectations, we, you know, uh, there's a lot of negative emotions that come with expectations. So learning to intend, like um, the intention. So learning to intend to hit a putt at a certain speed or on an intended line or with with a, with the feel of a certain stroke. You know, I, I think that's that's what's pretty interesting about, you know, people that don't putt well putt with tremendous unrealistic expectations and the best players in the world putt with strong intentions. You, you mentioned sort of, a, a few times there that visualization is, was a big part for Suzanne there and I, I use your template on a daily basis when, when I'm working um, and uh, on, on the sort of far right hand side down the bottom we've got vision so you know visualization can you uh, can you go into um, a little bit more detail on, on on visualization I know you've done a study with uh, using your uh, putt view well, I think it's important to find out what visual cues or external cues um, that players use, whether it's like the entry point to the cup or seeing an ideal line or curved line of the ball or the aim line or the aim point. You know, and, and it's interesting. You might 
use the curved line on a right to left putt, but you might use a straight line on a left to right putt as far as straight line to the aim point, not necessarily the target with the breaking putt, but but just yeah. learning which views capture your attention the best. And, uh, you know, the vis- visualization of seeing it happen before it happens is part of that, that intent that we're talking about. I think golfers struggle kind of tying th- this question to the previous one. You know, golfers struggle with, I mean, the expectations of what's going to happen. Does that make sense? As yeah. opposed to, I, I intend to, to, I intend to make every putt that I, that I'm, when I'm on the putting green, right. But the probability of that happening is not, not with us as far as the percentages, right. And the odds. So, but visualization is almost part of that intent. That's a visual skill, you know, visualization is a visual skill and that's part of our intent. I see, I see the ball curving into the hole at a certain speed and, and I intend to hit it at that speed. So the intention is, is, is there. Does that make sense? It's interesting with intentions is we can accept whatever the outcome is. Does that make sense? It is whatever it is. If it goes, doesn't go in, it's okay. I did my best mentally and physically, right? But I think with expectations, when the outcome, they get more outcome oriented or results oriented. And then when they don't, perform form it rather than accepting it they refuse to accept it and they get really down on themselves really negative very frustrated so I, I think that's a really key point that you just brought up about the visualization as it follows up with intent and expectation mm. so i think it's so important that we we need to train mentally with visualization skills seeing it happen before it happens what the body what we see the body will achieve if we don't see it, I don't think we'll believe it. Would that be fair? Um, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question, but uh, I think <laughs> I think seeing it happen obviously is, and then our body reacts. I think you know you're, really the question you're talking about is uh, our vision versus our visual perception. Those are two different things, right? And okay. um, visual perception, what our brain perceives what we see. You and I can be looking at something with our eyesight, which is you know, our visual acuity, and then obviously how our brain interprets what we're seeing, that's visual perception. From day to day is, you know, either heightened or not as not as good, the quality of it. And, you know, that's why I think some days we, we see the line well, and some days we don't. It's just our visual perception. If It's just how our brain perceives it. So, like, just talking about, you know, putters, um, it's, it's funny. I, I look down at a putter that has a line on it, and some days it looks good to me, and some days it looks crooked. You know, that, that would be an example of my visual perception, my brain perceiving what that putter appears to look like to me. And uh, so one of the solutions that I would do is either just get rid of the line and putt with no line on the putter, or uh, use a sight dot, or if anything, a very small dashed line. So, you know, again, it's just visual perception, um, which leads into, you know, the number one question I get in, all the time is, you know, should I use a line on the ball or not? And and p- people struggle with aiming the line on the ball, and they also struggle with how they perceive that line. And they get very frustrated because, well, geez, the line doesn't look straight when I get over top of it. So, again, it's a visual perception issue. So how would you overcome that, Dave? So, so like, obviously, some days the line looks good, and then, Another day, it doesn't look so good. And, and what would you say to the golfer to to not panic and not have pee going down their leg, as you as you say? 
Well, you know, it's funny that you asked the question because the answer is pretty darn simple, but yet people struggle with the answer. If it doesn't look good to you, don't use it. If it looks good to you, use it. If yeah. it's bothering you, then don't use it. I mean, it's like the simplest answer to the question, but yet people are perplexed about it. I mean, it's it almost gets back, I joke, it gets back to the Christopher Columbus days. The earth looks flat versus round. You know, it's a it's a perception thing. It's how you're seeing it, you know, pr- from a brain standpoint. Uh, the horizon looks flat, but we know the earth is relatively round. And then if you talk to a geologist, they say it's not round at all. It's a sphere. I think the biggest issue, too, is that we need to understand that the line on the putter is on a usually on a flat flange. And the line on the ball is on a round surface. So it's going to be difficult to match a line on a flat surface with a line on a round surface. Does that make sense? So if the line helps, great. If it doesn't help, then get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, that, I, how simple of an answer is that? People is feel like they... Uh, I think a lot of golfers think they should use it because Tiger Woods is, is use it or, like, you know, a lot of tour players use it. So they, they think that it'll help them with aim, but quite often it doesn't. Well, they can't even aim the ball. They can't even aim the line. <laughs> so they think aim the line and then they get over the ball and then it doesn't look right and they, they come back and you show them i'm like this thing's crooked from the start i think it is, as soon as there's any doubt over the ball like if the line's saying one thing and then you know your eyes or your body's telling you to, to that it's different as soon as there's any conflict over that ball you just you're just losing a, 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 the battle straight away aren't you before you even start the stroke well that's a great point but my point is most people can't see the line because they didn't line it up straight. That's my point. I'll tell you what, the best I've ever seen it line up the golf ball is one of my 11-year-old kids. One of my 11-year-old students, she's fantastic at wherever, you know, she lines the ball pretty much the vast majority of times at where she intends to. You know what I mean? But, you know, the yeah. average golfer they don't even pay attention to the finer detail of, of aiming the ball. Jumping back to before you line the ball up, you need to know where to line it up to talk a little... Um... Talk to us about green reading, David, and what what you see as the 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 best way or the two best ways, perhaps, to to read greens. Well, I mean, to me, green reading is the most important skill of the four skills: read, speed, line, and aim. Because if you've misread, good is your stroke, and then you have <laughs> to get the break amount. So you got break direction, break amount that you have to solve for. So, uh, how are you going to develop this skill? Well, I mean, I think aim point is the way to to be introduced to the principles of green reading. And it's a good system. It's fairly easy for people to learn. The only other way is to sit there and putt for a couple hours a day, several days a week and memorize every putt you've ever seen. You know, if you like, if, if you want to work really hard and try to do it by memory, go for it. But I think, I think aim points a better option. Great stuff. Yeah. Um, obviously you have to agree common question i get is like well tiger woods doesn't need doesn't use aim point what would you say to someone who say said that to you i would say listen you idiot tiger woods spends two to three hours a day putting every you know five six days a week and has for years and he is paying attention to every little thing and he's putting on different green complexes and different surfaces throughout his career so he has a tremendous amount of experience to draw from you know you're, that's a person that, that that doesn't practice and doesn't have any work ethic and doesn't acquire the skill asking the question talking of talented golfers what what's the difference 
from what you've seen from sort of, you know, good golfers who or you know, gr- still great golfers, let's say they're 100th in the world to number one in the world. What do you see as the, the, the main difference between those two? Just physically more gifted. I mean, it's the if we looked at the Kentucky Derby horse race, you know, you're looking at 15 to 20 of the best horses on the planet, right? You know, they're just physically gifted. You know, that's what I see. I mean, I was talking with Justin Rose the other day just on a friendly phone call to see how he's doing. And, you know, we were just chatting about, you know, him and Tiger Woods and Dustin Johnson, Brooke Kepka, or whoever we were talking about. But, you know, these guys are all physically gifted. Rory, they're all physically gifted in their own way. Yeah, they're just you know athletes, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny. I mean, we've we've been lied to, especially in our generation. Of, you know, my mom tells me if I work hard, I can do anything I put my mind to, and it's not true. I mean, it's just not true. Yes, I need to work hard, but I've only got a certain physical gift I can have. You know, I can't. I'm, no matter how hard I work, I'm not going to run a four three forty. No matter how hard I work, I'm not going to jump forty four inches off the ground. Uh, no matter how hard I work, I can't throw a football 65 yards in the air. The generation that, that I grew up in, the, my children are growing up in, is this, this uh, that I can do anything that I put my mind to. And I mean, I think that applies to people that have talent. Like if you have a phys- some physical gifts, um, that if you work really hard to refine and master those skills, then you'll be the best that you were designed to be. Not all of us have the same physical gifts and talent and that's what i see that separates the best from the best is you know being the giftedness um and then some players are you know above average as far as physical gifts but mentally they got you know some mental gifts as well the ability to focus the the ability to keep out distractions or interference you know here here's a perfect example how does luke donald get to number one in the world without winning a major and he's not long he's actually short and uh, with his length off the tee, get, you know, one of the best wedge players, short game players and putters, you know, of our generation um, or the generation behind behind us. And, you know, he, his, he maxed out his, his, his potential. You know what I mean? Did, did you ever um, get, get a chance to sort of observe, observe Luke or watch videos or speak to his coaches and, learn from him spent i spent a tremendous number of practice rounds walking with luke and his coach patrick goss and his caddy at the time was johnny mclaren so i mean justin rose played a lot with luke in practice rounds and i got i got to walk with with them several times and chat with them and he and him and his coach and and learn from those guys so yeah i mean i've gotten i got i got a great uh front row seat to learning What's the future holding? What, what's uh, what's your sort of current research? I know you're always researching up in that cave of yours. What's uh, what's your recent rabbit hole that you've been going down? Yeah, so I just I've been studying the motion of the upper arm and the shoulder joint, the shoulder complex. The um, you know how players, some players have more of a rotational arm motion, some have more of a lateral uh, arm motion, and some have more of a pushing type motion where their arm is kind of working back and forth behind them in them back in front of them. And I've got, you know, new, new material obviously every year for new presentations. So I put together a brand new presentation already. And uh, obviously I've got something new called Academy practice plan that I've put together. 
I've put it together because of my online instruction. So I send a PDF to my students that I'm working with online. And it's about a 40-slide uh, presentation. So, yeah, I've been doing a lot of work uh, in this quarantine period. So I'm always doing some work. But, yeah, yeah, I've been moving up the chain. I started with the wrists and the elbows, and now I'm up into the upper arm and the shoulders and just studying how, how players do it differently. But that's fascinating. You're getting some... You've seen some sort of patterns or some traits that, that the top golfers tend to do. Is there any sort of preferences you're seeing there, or do they all well, look completely I, different they, in that segment? Even the top golfers do it a little bit different, you know, so it's it's coordination is what's key here. I think that the mindset is that we're trying to find out what the good players do. Work with good players, and you go, well, geez, everybody does it different. You know, the similarities are that they, you know, all are – got a basic ball position and a setup and a grip and um they the, the similarities are they all have skill development right but the but the differences are in the technique and the way they do it you know mm. um and even with, from just the simple of how they hold the club is <clears throat> different player to player um how they put their arms in different uh alignments is different from player to player Postures a little bit different from player to player, but they're all bent over. They're not standing way up. You know, I don't know how many players on tour have an extremely upright posture. I don't know how many players on tour have their arms extended straight, um, like a triangle. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't see how many play many players on the tour having this long, slow, pendular stroke. Um, yeah, I mean, so there are some similarities and differences, but there isn't anything specific. You know, that, okay, good players are all doing this with their technique. You know, um, you, I would say probably the biggest thing is their, their ability for their consistency with their, within their pattern. Um, they have a pattern of movement rather than a, a movement that's perfected every time. They, they've got, you know, every putt has some variability, but uh, good players have less variability than bad players, you know. And some of the variability within the good players is good stuff because they're adapting and adjusting to their environment. So this mindset of, okay, what are the good players doing? We need to do what they're doing. Uh, okay, do what they're doing, putt more, practice more, learn more, become more skilled, refine your technique and your pattern. That's what needs to be done, in my opinion. What, you know, what, what you're saying and what you said earlier with Justin is like, be good at being you. That's what Justin Rose does well. He's quite technical from my understanding. I've never met him, but from my understanding of speaking to yourself and Phil and someone like DJ potentially might not be as um, technical in thinking and they know that and they, they're good at what, what they do. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, their mind and their approach to things are different. You know, one of the strengths of Justin Rose is he's technically sound, but his preparations is off the charts, I think. You know, Justin Rose's preparation uh, for for tournament golf is, in Tiger Woods, is very similar as far as the amount of preparation and the depth of that preparation. Uh, whereas, you know, other guys this don't work as hard because maybe they're physically gifted in a certain way. I mean, look at how far Justin uh, Dustin Johnson hits a golf ball. I mean, but they all hit it far enough, right? But right. Uh, you know, once Dustin Johnson figured out to to go away from drawing the ball unless he needed to, to fading it, that's when he appeared, and then obviously better wedge play and better putting. So the big three mm -hmm. clubs that you've got to be good at, you got to hit it far, you got to wedge it close, and you got to putt well. 
Um, and then if you can hit your irons really good, that's that's a bonus. You know, Tiger Woods is a perfect example of somebody who scores with his iron play and his putting. Right. So each player mm-hmm. has their their each player has their own recipe of getting getting the job done. You mentioned the triangle and the pendulum. Let's let's go and and shoot a few of these bad beliefs that um, that are going to be on your gravestone. I think you've said that a few times that that you're going to take them to. You know, people will never listen. But let's uh, let's keep um, drumming those bad beliefs out and uh, shoot a few down, will you? Well, I think it comes from Bill Kenyon says an engineering model. I think I think people describe putting from an engineering description you know so like we've got a pendulum and you know which means that the putter's moving in a circular motion around a point that makes sense so there's angular motion or a motion around a fixed axis well we know we're using technology that yes the vast majority of the putting stroke has circular motion to it but it's not mm-hmm. pure it's not pure circular motion there is some translation of the butt of the club there might be some translation in the stroke, uh, side to side, up, down, maybe out of plane a little bit or whatever. But it's not a perfect pendulum. And when people think of a pendulum, they try to, like, in their mind, I'm going to be a pendulum. You know what I mean? So the pendulum concept is bad because of what it makes people perceive themselves to be doing. Does that make sense? You know, Got you. So they set up their arms very straight. Yeah, so they try to be they try to be a pendulum as opposed to being a human being that's trying to putt. Now, you know, there there are some pendulum qualities to a putting stroke, but but it's not pure, but it's what people do with their mind is, okay, I'm going to be a pendulum, I'm going to tick and I'm going to talk and I'm you know, it just makes them very rigid looking. Um as far as the triangle, I mean, you know, We've talked about this several times. A triangle only has three segments, right? So you have a left arm and a shoulder line and a trail arm, right? Well, we know yeah. that we know that the arms aren't straight on each side. So we've got, you know, a lead hand, a lead forearm, a lead upper arm, and the shoulder line, and then we got a trail hand, a trail forearm, and a trail upper arm. You know, the longer your arms are the arms can sway side to side but they can also rotate very easily in the shoulder joint so you get some relative rotation in the arms that's not really what you want and then obviously this rigid looking thing trying to move back and forth uh you got your arms as a triangle and you're trying to be a pendulum you look you look rather uh rudimentary to be quite honest with you Uh, you know what i mean so Mm. best players in the world don't that if you watch on television. No, there needs to be degrees of freedom there, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a very important point that you just brought up, is that the good players use all these little degrees of freedom in a coordinated effort to make a functional, effective putting stroke. Definition, coordination in the putting stroke is? Well, being able to coordinate the movement of the putter with both hands, both arms, both shoulders, torso, and you're trying to take the putter back in a circular motion, and certain distance and time um and you're trying to generate enough speed and energy and power uh delivering the club to the ball and you're trying to do it with a certain intended direction what if i told you the the movements are made up of up of such small degrees but they're made up of degrees of freedom so rather than trying to eliminate degrees of freedom we're trying to minimize the degrees of freedom in a coordinated effort you know i feel like i put my best when i'm putting with everything moving, working together, 
that makes sense? So it's not like I'm yeah. not doing something. It's like I'm trying to do something, which gets back to intent. <laughs> when I'm trying hmm. to do something, I intend to do this. I intend to move the putter like this, you know, with, with so it, yeah, it's, it's, it's small degrees of freedom that are working together to produce an intention. Uh, you've mentioned uh, to, to me in the past days about rhythm as well, which is that it all sort of works together quite nicely. And um, I think you described uh, rhythm as like someone playing the violin perhaps, or when it all just. Right. Well, here, here's the thing that <clears throat> terms like rhythm and timing and tempo and, and the music field is, is, is different than what we would use in the movement field of, of, playing golf so a rhythm ratio would be like taking the backswing time and versus the time to impact whereas the overall timing of your stroke can be described as quick or slow so i can be in rhythm have good rhythm and have a quick tempo i can have good rhythm and have a slow tempo i can have a stroke that's poorly timed or i can have a stroke that's on time that makes sense so these terms Mm -hmm. Terminologies are different, but yeah, as far as like coordination and being well timed, having the velocities of the club and the velocities of the hands, the velocity of the arms, the velocity of the shoulders being matched up, uh, one would flowing, and one would say it would look effortless, and one would say it looks like it has good timing or it has good rhythm or flow to it. So these are all different ways of describing. Uh, uh, the motion. Well, as always, I'm learning from you, Dave, when we speak. So, um, thank you. So let's uh, let's sort of get to uh, to wrapping up. I've got a couple more quick fire questions. So you don't uh, you're, you're struggling with something and you need that one bit of advice. Who do you call? I search within my 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 experience and my knowledge, and and I like to solve it myself now. If I were to talk to somebody about my putting, it would probably be Phil Kenyon first, obviously, because he's a good friend of mine. But I haven't, I mean, I learn from other people, but I ultimately learn from myself. So I'm a big proponent of self-discovery and figuring things out myself. And uh, what what one bit of advice have you got uh, the, the listeners? Like, if there's one thing they can go away with today and that's going to help them become better or putters practice get back get to work and get practicing at a level higher than you're at if you're just an average golfer start practicing put some work ethic in there uh you shared with us that um jason day practiced up to 20 hours a week it was reported that he did does about 20 hours uh, a week practice and he was uh world number one going back uh last year and, and number one in the putting stats the last year or the year before yeah he practices a lot you know um and people that practice a lot practice a lot because they love it and i think that's the most important thing is that you got to love putting because then you'll spend time and energy on it so um yeah i mean i'm not saying our average listener needs to go out and practice 20 hours a week but get to three to five hours a week how about that brilliant okay david um last one it's uh it's date night mrs o you're cooking. What are you cooking, and, and what's on the what you uh, what you presenting, and what you uh, what you drinking? Coke Zero Sugar, probably, and and then we're probably having a nice uh, something with some type of pork or chicken and uh, vegetables. So we 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 try to eat healthy because it's so easy to to uh, eat junk food and so tempting to eat junk food. But yeah, that's we'll spend an evening uh, 
having a nice dinner and david um thank you so much for coming on to the call and as I, as ever I, I learned a lot and hopefully the uh the listeners will uh, enjoy as well um can they find out more about you on your on your website tell us yep. a little bit or social media that you're getting into a no i'm just uh just been on there a little bit yeah instagram or facebook uh instagram flatstick academy Facebook, David Orr, Flatstick Academy, and then obviously my website's www.flatstickacademy.com. And they can subscribe to that on your website to actually learn and find out more? They can. Yeah, it's nine ninety nine a month. So feel free to join and and uh, or uh, come on for a month and then cancel. That's fine. But uh, there's some good information on there. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. Really appreciate your time.